We'll just start tonight. We have another question. Can you think of any jobs where you need many skills or even official qualifications to do that job? Neurosurgeon. Okay, what, what are some of the skills or qualifications you need? Um, <laughs> you need to not kill someone when you do it. Okay, that's... Okay, you need to have a degree in med school. Probably a certification from a board. Uh, probably licensing in whatever state you're practicing in. Caden? An astronaut. What certifications or qualifications do you need? Space stuff. Space stuff. Yep. You, you you gotta be able to like put the <coughs> astronaut stuff on. You need to be able to like put the astronaut. That's a, that's a yeah. That's a skill. You need to go through several tests, that's true. But you do probably need to be a scientist of some sort. Be able to do complicated equations and things because you're doing science on the fly. Uh, you need to be physically ready to do that. And you need to be able to work with robot stuff. Jonah? Engineering. And what, what many skills or qualifications? We're all picking some very narrow fields. Uh, engineering, you need to be have an engineering degree. Yes, mathematics. Mathematics, yeah. What, what skills do you need or qualifications? Okay. What do you have in mind that has many skills required? Huh? <laughs> Lily. Food location manager. You not right. only need to get your license to do serve in restaurants, you also need to get your license depending on which brand you're going through. In that role, I learned how to fix golf carts. It's $20,000 espresso machines. You have to learn how to do every single position on there. You have to know how to do human resource, all the admin stuff in the back, and anything physical in front, and customer service. There you go. Many skills. And many qualifications, and certifications you need. Just to mention. That's an example of a job where you need to be good at many things, qualified at. And certified in many And things. certified in many things. <laughs> uh, I thought of a mom. Oh, yeah, mom. Oh, you need to be good at first aid. Dad. Uh, dads also need to be, have many roles. Moms need to be good at first aid. They need to be counselors, basically. Uh, teachers, teachers uh, cooks a lot of the time, maids. <laughs> I made my mom clean up so much after me, mm -hmm. even when I was way too old to be doing that. Nurses. Nurses. Uh, Janae, what were you thinking? Oh, um, I was a CEO. A CEO. Oh, yeah. yeah. You need to be good okay. at running your business. Can you slide over there? Absolutely. I also thought of Navy SEAL. You need to, uh, I mean, initially they were like bomb defusal guys. So they needed to be qualified in that. They needed to get diving qualifications. They jumping be out of helicopters. Jumping out of helicopters. They're doing everything. Hmm. They're not specialists in the sense that they have to be good at many things in their military area. Anything else? I was going to say being a therapist or Okay. Have a lot of patience for one, mm -hmm. um, and have like you have to know a lot about the brain to mm -hmm. know how to help the brain. Yeah, you can get like psychology degrees and stuff like that. Think of think of Pastor Nathan. What does he have to do on a weekly basis? 
He has to prepare a sermon and preach a sermon. He's often counseling people in his office. So doing that job in addition to preaching. He's being a CEO in a lot of ways. He's kind of the boss uh, of the Millwood staff as well. Professional mover also. He's also a professional mover. (laughs) He's doing a ton of different things. And he's got to be good at all of those things. Jesus has a job. Shocker, we're talking about Jesus tonight. This is leading to Jesus. Jesus was employed. He was a carpenter. That's how you But Jesus had a more important job. Jesus has the job of a mediator. He stands between God and man. He stands between God and man as God and man. In order to reconcile God and man. He's a mediator or a middleman. Remember we talked about a mediator when we talked about Moses uh, interceding, being in the middle of God and the people Israel. Jesus is a mediator. And this job has three main qualifications. The job of mediator that Jesus has has three main qualifications. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is a qualified mediator Because he's a perfect prophet, priest, and king. So to help us understand those three qualifications, God gave those jobs to different people in Israel. So that way when Jesus came on the scene, people had a better understanding of what each of those jobs, those qualifications was. We've been looking at how the whole Bible is one story about God's glory by redeeming a people of Christ. And the whole way we've been looking through the first five books of the Bible and seeing how God's making this whole story about Christ. One way he keeps doing that is he keeps showing the people their need for Christ. Ever since Genesis 3, he showed how much people need him to provide them with Christ-like figures that point them to Jesus. So you think Adam and Eve need someone to crush the serpent. The Israelites needed Moses to help them escape from Egypt. The Israelites needed a lamb to be sacrificed to pay for their sins. They needed someone to lift a snake up on a pole. They needed a snake to be lifted up on a pole to save them from the snake bites. They need these Christ-like figures because they're needy people. Last week, as we mentioned earlier, we started looking at Deuteronomy. We looked at Deuteronomy 6, where Moses starts to give his people final pep talk before they cross over the Jordan and take the promised land that God promised to them. Does anyone, I've already said it, does anyone remember the mantra, the little short memorable phrase that Moses gives his people before they go into the promised land? Does anyone remember that mantra? Yeah, it starts, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So it starts with who God is, and then it has a command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Everything you have. The question, though, is how are they going to do this as a nation? How is Israel going to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength, or might? Do you think they're going to cross into the promised land and love him perfectly? No. No, Janae, you're shaking your head no. 
Does anybody, why not? Why do we, can we assume that they're not going to do this perfectly? Because humans aren't perfect. Humans aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. Have we seen anything up to this point that's shown that they're not perfect as a nation? I mean, he's the, they have it as God. They've got the law. They should know what to do. What did you say, Nathaniel? I said everything. They've everything they've done. Proven that they're not perfect. Yeah. Any specific examples you guys can think of? They're grumbling. That yeah. brought those snakes. Yeah. Yeah. And condemned them to wander for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Anything else? And then you couldn't even cross over the spies. They're like, they're giants, mm-hmm. bro. They're giants. We can't go. Yeah, better you not know? go. They, so they didn't not listen. To... God didn't listen. Yeah. Think of me. Yeah. That one time Moses went up on Mount Sinai and the people started worshiping a golden cow. Yeah. yeah. That was another big one I was thinking of, too. They've proven themselves over and over that they're probably not going to keep this commandment. Moses actually later says, I know you're not going to keep this commandment. They keep proving that they're needy people. God meets their need. He's commanded them to love him. And he meets their need by giving them leaders who will help them love God and love one another rightly. So he gives them prophets, priests, and kings. This is something very kind of God to do. He knows they're going to fail, and he gives good leadership, godly leadership, to help them to do what he's commanded. He hasn't just let them on their own. Uh, Just two ways of thinking how people organize themselves. How has America organized its government? Three branches. Okay, what are those Uh, branches? uh, Legislative, executive, judicial. I'm a government person. There you go. That's something. And they all have separate jobs, so it's not just on one, like, branch or one group, so it doesn't transmit their leadership. Yeah, so the Founding Fathers thought it wise, after hundreds of years of kind of people trying to figure out what's the best way to organize ourselves, they thought it wise to give us a legislative branch, senators and congressmen, a president, an executive branch, and a Supreme Court, a judicial branch. So we have them to help lead us. How does Millwood organize itself? The church. Pastors. Okay, so we have pastors, elders, same office, pastor, elder, overseer. Deacons. And deacons. God's given the church those two offices, those two roles, to help lead, steer the church uh, to do its job. Um, yeah, Janae. Briefly explain the difference between elder and deacon. Elders minister the word. Deacons minister physical things that need to get done. So elders are tasked with shepherding the sheep, mainly by teaching the Bible. Uh, Deacons are tasked with equipping, helping the elders to do that by taking care of the other needs in the church. So we financial stuff. stuff, uh, Deacons, uh, we have deacon of like benevolence. Um, We have deacon of audiovisual. So who's turning the lights on? Who's making sure all that's set up? If Nathan had to do that in the morning, that would be time he didn't he get to spend. Be he wouldn't be preaching. Yeah. yeah. So the deacons take care of those physical things so that the elders can take care of preaching the word. And so you see God's wisdom in that, in serving the body to equip them to be able to do what God's called them to do, which is minister to one another and love one another and serve one another. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14 through 18.22.
<clears throat> for the sake of time, I'm going to read it. It's a beefy chunk of passage, longer than we've usually read on Wednesday nights. What verse start off? Uh, we're starting in 1714. Deuteronomy 1714. <clears throat> there's a Bible over there. And there's... Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in, in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits down on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. King. Moving on to priest. Chapter 18. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, have, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offering as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks of the stomach and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give to him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, he may come whenever he desires to the place that the Lord will choose and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portion to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. Uh, let's skip a few verses just for the sake of time, down to verse 15, because he gives some uh, warnings against idolatry, and in a sense he's just talking about right worship in the temple. And then he goes to 15, uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses talking. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. So this is the Lord now speaking. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him, command him. 
And whoever will not listen to my words that he speak, shall speak in my name, I myself will, will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the, the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So as you're reading the book of De Deuteronomy, you're reading through, you're hearing all these rules, all these laws. It might be tempting to just hear these as uh, a few more sections of other regulations of what a priest should do, what this other office should do. But we see in this passage that God has provided Israel with these offices so that it can function rightly as a nation that worships rightly and loves God and neighbor well. But, how are we reading this? We're not in the nation of Israel. We can see that we are needy people. Probably more needy even than Israel was. How are we supposed to organize our own life so that we can worship God rightly and love him and others well? Well, God's given the church, as we've already said, a prophet, a priest, and a king. So the main takeaway from this passage we just read is that God gave Israel all they needed for life in the promised land. Even prophets, priests, and kings. In Christ, God has given the church all she needs for life. All she needs for union and communion with God, for salvation, for fellowship with one another. He's given to the church in Christ. God has made him prophet, priest, and king. So let's look at each of those offices. Let's look at what it means and how Christ fulfills that office perfectly. We're actually going to move backwards, just because that's how usually people refer to the three offices as prophet, priest, and king, even though the text says king, priest, prophet. So let's start in 1815, not the year, chapter 18, verse 15. Moses tells people that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God to God's people. Someone who speaks on behalf of God to God's people. Israel is going to need prophets. God's people need a prophet because they need to hear from God. And God's chosen to speak primarily through people, through prophets. It's only very rare in scripture that you actually hear a voice of God thundering from the heavens. Why does God, does Israel need God to speak to them? Why do they need to hear from God at all? Because they need to be reminded. Of what? Of who God is and to turn back to him. Exactly. They need to continually be reminded of who God is, what his will is for them. We, as finite creatures, can't figure out God for ourselves. We can't look around and understand, as, as finite creatures, who the infinite, eternal, perfectly holy God is. We need him to reveal himself to us. We need him to stoop down, bend down, and tell us about himself. 
some examples of prophets would be Moses. He himself is a prophet. He says that here. He brings down God's law from Mount Sinai to God's people. God spoke to his people through Moses. Isaiah is a prophet who warns Israel about coming judgment and about coming Messiah. God spoke to his people hundreds of years after Moses through Isaiah. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's how the book of Hebrews starts. After hundreds and hundreds of years of God giving prophets to the nation of Israel, the author of Hebrews says, we've received our final prophet, the perfect prophet, who is not merely a man, though fully man. He is the radiance of the glory of God. God has spoken finally and authoritatively through Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' promise here that another prophet will come. He is the ultimate prophet who most clearly and fully reveals who God is and what his will is. We see Jesus fulfilling that, that what he mostly did during his three-year ministry while on earth. What was Jesus' main thing he was going about doing while he was in his three-year ministry. Janae, you just read a couple of the Gospels. What did he spend a lot of time doing? He spent a lot of time healing the sick, mm -hmm. performing miracles, mm -hmm. and um, He also spent a lot of time preaching. Preaching and teaching is the main thing that he went about doing. He, yes, he went around healing people and performing many miracles. Those miracles, though, were to point to his teaching, to author, like to give authority, weight, to what he was saying. The miracles proved that Jesus' teaching was from God. Yeah, because like when Jesus calmed the sea, mm -hmm. uh, his disciples were like, "Who is this man that even the sea and the wind obey him?" They obey him. He, what does he do to this to calm? He speaks. Mm -hmm. He says a word and it stops. And when does that happen? Do you remember when that happens in the Gospel of Matthew? Right after um, something. Oh, I read it like really recently in Luke. Uh -huh. um, in Matthew, it's pretty soon after the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. So he yeah. goes up and starts teaching, mm -hmm. and then he proves that this isn't like the scribes. Mm -hmm. This is coming from someone who can control nature. Yeah. So we better listen to those words. That's the way we apply this. We listen to the one who's proven himself to be God. God himself instructs us to do that. So Moses says, to him you shall listen, to this prophet he's talking about that's going to come in the future. To him you shall listen. What does God say at the transfiguration on the mount? When we do get an audible voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. So God, from heaven, is speaking, saying, listen to this prophet, who is more than a prophet. 
So how do we listen to God? Read your Bible. His teaching is recorded in the Bible, and it's not just. Some Bibles have red letters. Does anybody's Bible have red letters where Jesus is talking? Oh, some of my Bibles. Yeah. Those red letters, or you might just have quotation marks around what Jesus is saying. The whole Bible is authored by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is just as inspired, just as uh, important, and just as much something we should listen to as those red letters. So we need to know and listen to the whole of the Bible. Yes, Jim. Carson, did you get the little black notebook? Oh, Carson and Nathaniel, I owe you a notebook. And maybe Caden. Caden got one. Caden got one. All right. So we ought to listen to Jesus. God has authenticated him. Jesus has authenticated himself with his miracles. Therefore, we should look to Jesus as a reliable teacher. He knows your heart perfectly. Like no other teacher, like no parent, like no counselor can. So he can speak to you through his word better than any other teacher. Jesus alone can speak to your heart and tell you specifically what you need for salvation better than any human teacher. So learn from Jesus. He's the best teacher you'll ever have. He'll never steer you wrong. Have you ever received bad advice? Yeah. <laughs> Some of us have received disastrous advice sometimes. Some of us have given bad advice. Some of us have given bad advice. Uh, Jesus will never give you bad advice. It kind of sounds trite, but I promise you, if you follow Jesus, if you listen to his advice, it will lead sometimes to hardship, sometimes to persecution, sometimes to losing friends. But listening to Jesus will never be wrong. You can never look back at that and say, that was bad advice I received. We can be assured that through those things, we've received good advice and can endure in that teaching. Any questions about that, that first office, or anything we just talked about? It's a lot, and we've still got a little ways to go tonight. So let's look at the second office, prophet, priest. We'll try and pick up the pace. Prophet, priest, and last we'll look at king. Look at the beginning of chapter 18, the very beginning of chapter 18. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance. Moses is giving instruction to the Le Levitical priest. Where have we heard instruction to these people before, this tribe? Can you say your question in a different way? Where, uh, we've, we've spent a whole Wednesday looking at instruction to the Levitical priest. Where? Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. He's given instruction about the priesthood, about what they should do. Uh, this is Deuteronomy, uh, the second law, second giving of the law. So it's making sense that we're hearing this again. We're not hearing something new. Uh, but we're getting again what they're supposed to do. Look at verse 5. For the Lord your God has chosen him, that is Levi and his tribe, out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord. So their job is to minister in the name of the Lord. They're serving in the tabernacle, and they'll eventually, when the temple is built, serve in the temple. So what is a priest? A priest 
For priests are the people's representatives before God. Priests are the people's representatives before God. They work in the tabernacle. What they're mainly doing day in, day out is offering sacrifices. Their main job is offering sacrifices. They're also commanded to teach God's word, but the main thing they're doing is offering sacrifices. Remember what we've said about sacrifices. Sacrifices show the people that in order for sinful people to draw near, to be in the presence of a holy God, they have to offer blood. They have to kill an animal because their sin deserves death. So what we learned in Leviticus was that God accepts this sacrifice, the death of another, in place of a sinful people. So when this happens, when these sacrifices are rightly offered, God can dwell with Israel, and Israel can approach their God without immediately being consumed by wrath. That would would would, would happen if a sinful person approaches a holy God without offering a sacrifice. Just consumed. But all these priests offering all these sacrifices only point to the ultimate priest who offers the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. Back to the book of Hebrews, we see in Hebrews 6 that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to talk about what the order of Melchizedek is. The point is, Jesus has become a high priest forever. He's the perfect high priest who's offered the perfect sacrifice. We said earlier, we're needy people, just like Israel. We're sinful people. We've broken God's law. We've defiled ourselves before a holy God. We've lied. We've dishonored our parents. We've worshipped idols. We've worshipped ourselves. We've worshipped our possessions, and we love them more than we love God. How dare people like us continue to live in God's world? How dare we think we can live forever in heaven? Only way we can is if our sins are paid for. Only if we're washed clean. And we're washed in the blood of Christ when we repent and we turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone. Christ is a perfect priest for his people. He lived a perfect, spotless life, and he offered that life up to God on the cross. He was the perfect substitute. And he was raised to life. Again, God vindicated all of his work. He said, I approve, I am pleased, when he raised him from the dead. He raised him in a physical body, a body that's still in heaven, seated at God's right hand with holes in his hand, a hole in his side, holes in his feet. And so, as the perfect priest that he is, he stands before the Father, always, because he lives forever, always showing the Father his wounds, reminding God that he's paid for the sins of his people. It's like he's holding a receipt for something he's purchased, always holding it up can't take it away from me. I've purchased it. Christ has purchased his people, always reminding the Father. And the Father gladly accepts that. The Father is not angry and going, I really wish I could get those people now. He's saying, Amen. My son has purchased my people. We sang earlier, 
five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. The wounds themselves plead before God. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Forgive her, oh, forgive they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. When we look at those holes in Christ's hand, we see forgiveness, but we also see how seriously God takes sin. He hates, God hates sin so much that he pierced his son. It took putting his death, his son to death, to solve the problem of sin in our lives. And so that should make us weep over our sin, cry over our sin, be sad, sorrowful for our sin. Our sin makes Christ's death unnecessary. But it also gives us comfort. God doesn't leave his people in sadness. Christ is a perfect priest, and Hebrews tells us he's able to save perfectly or forever, to the uttermost, is the, what the word means. He's able to save forever, perfectly, everyone who draws near to God through him. Everyone who trusts in Christ can have confidence that they are perfectly saved. They can have comfort that they're perfectly saved. You don't have to add anything to Christ's work. You can't make something perfect better. Then it wouldn't be perfect. Christ and his work are perfect. Christ could lose even just one of his people. He wouldn't be a perfect high priest. So Christ is the perfect Savior, the perfect high priest. Lastly, or really firstly in our text, Moses talks about a king. Israel has prophets to teach them. They have priests to offer right sacrifices and to help them worship rightly. And eventually they're going to ask for a king to lead them, to govern them and, and rule them in the land. We see in this passage a few things uh, that makes a good king. What do you think would make a good king versus a bad king? What's a trait a good king would have? What's a trait a bad king would have? Fairness. What would a bad king do? Mm, he would be unfair. Yeah. Maybe like, to, to people who give them a lot of money. Yeah. Let them off the hook for things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So justice. A good king is just. Carson. A good king. Fairness would also be splitting the baby in half. Mm. Um, but he isn't a tyrant. Not a tyrant. What do you mean by that? Um, should work with his people. Should from them so he can just help mm. them directly yeah. and not just lord over them and be like, oh, I know it's supposed to be like the people are just being forced. Force people to do things against their will would be a tyrant, right? Jonah? A wisdom. Wise. A good king should be wise. What would a bad king then? He'd be really dumb. Be dumb. Or foolish. And we see, we see warnings against these very things in this passage. Uh, 
Look at verse 18 of chapter 17. He shall write for himself in a book the copy of his law. Uh, so that gets to, and he's supposed to read it every day of his life. So that gets to Jonah's point of wisdom. God's king ought to be a wise king. Uh, moving backwards to 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. What got those French kings and the English kings in trouble often was acquiring many women, many mistresses for themselves. So that's another temptation an earthly king might have. Verse 16, not acquire many horses. Wealth, greed, that would tempt him to be unjust. He even says, don't go back to Egypt. Uh, that would be unjust to bring his people back into slavery just to get horses, just to get money, basically, things, material wealth. God gives Israel many kings. Saul, then David, David's son Solomon, then the kingdom splits, and each one has many, many kings. But God promises a special king to Israel. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A promise from 2 Samuel 7. This, the Bible says, is King Jesus. He's from the line of David by the flesh. He's declared to be the eternal Son of God in power by his resurrection. This is a king who rules over his kingdom forever. Behold, your king riding on a donkey. John 12, 15 says. Revelation describes him as the king of kings. The other kings of Israel rule for a few years over the nation and then die. Jesus died, then rose again and holds his kingship forever. Ruling and reigning where? In the hearts of believers. Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts of believers. Jesus rules over his church in their hearts. Like Carson was getting at earlier, Jesus is no tyrant. He rules over willing, gladly willing subjects, citizens who are happy to be under his rule. His subjects are grateful. His subjects are obedient. His subjects proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world, even to the enemies of the king. We were all enemies of King Jesus. And Jesus will have victory over his enemies. He'll either win their hearts and make them willing subjects, or he'll conquer them and send them to prison forever, eternally. Is Jesus your king? Do you gladly live under his reign? Or do you hate his law and break it any chance you get? Jesus is a loving, a good, and kind king. Come to him. Make peace with the one who will rule over all things forever. Come to the great high priest and have your sins forgiven and be saved. Come to the great prophet who says, Come to me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart.
and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your rule through Christ over your church, indeed over this world, as king for his intercession, uh, for his prayers for his people as priest, and for his wise instruction as prophet. We thank you for the perfect Savior you've given us, for the mediator that stands between God and man, perfectly saving his people. Help us to know him, to see him more clearly in your word, and to come to him in faith, in Christ. Amen. Amen.